Hey, why don't you open in your Bible with me to Acts chapter 4, and we're going to start at verse 32. Man, look at you all. You look so nice today. Good to see you. As you're opening, I just want to let you know that I have renewed respect for, don't look back because they'll be super embarrassed. They, they're back there because they don't want you to notice them. And if everything goes right, you shouldn't notice them. But our sound and computer guy back there um, did a great job this morning, don't you think? And, and there's, a, there's a lot of work that goes into that. Yesterday, there was a memorial service here, and I ran that stuff back there, and I was petrified. I was scared. So the good thing was it gave me a great appreciation for the guys that run those things back there. There's a lot to it. It's more than just sitting back there and punching a few buttons. So I appreciate them very much. Acts chapter 4 is where we're at. And I would just actually just like to start by reading verses 32 through chapter 5, verse 11. Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 32. Follow along. The Word of God says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each one as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And verse 11 says, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Our dear Heavenly Father, I just would ask today that you would renew in us a sense 
of reverence, a sense of awe, a sense of holy fear as we consider your holiness. Holy Spirit, I just ask that you would convict where we need conviction today. And Lord Jesus, may you continue to be lifted high in this place, in this time. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is a a question that haunts us during times of temptation to sin. It is only four uh, four words in length, but it holds the power of an atomic bomb. It is a question that is as old as time, first spoken by the evil one himself in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Did God really say? Did God really say? It's an attack on the trustworthiness of the Word of God. It makes us doubt His goodness toward us, getting us rather to think that God is mean and withholding. Did God really say it feeds our pride, making us think that we can wear the crown over our own life, that we know better than God? When the question, did God really say, takes over, the notion of sin is deteriorated. Certainly, the consequences of sin almost seem null and void. Eve and Adam were confronted with that question. Did God really say? And they ate the fruit, believing that perhaps God didn't really say. Yes, their eyes were opened, but the consequences were they were banished from that paradise. And even beyond that, The sin that entered into their lives now was going to be passed on to all mankind. Did God really say? Abraham must have wrestled with this question. Did God really say you must not lie? When he told his wife Sarah to just say that she was his sister? King David was tempted to lust, and as he watched Bathsheba bathing, certainly he wondered, did God really say? Did God really say that a man should not look upon a woman in lust? And then when he invited her over to his palace, he must have been asking the question, did God really say you shouldn't commit adultery? And then when she had conceived, he must have asked the question, did God really say thou should not kill And today, we are plagued by this question just as much, are we not? Sometimes the question may zip right past us as we've already desired and decided to engage in disobedience to God. And because we're in an age of grace, we not only are wrestling with that question, did God really say, but in this age of grace, we like to add another phrase after that. And the phrase would be, did God really say, oh, surely he will understand? Did God really say, obey your government? Surely God would understand if I fudge a little on my taxes? Did God really say adultery is sin? Surely God will understand that I'm unhappy in my marriage and and this other person makes me so happy. 
Did God really say that you're to honor him with your first fruits? Well, surely God will understand that times are tough and I need to keep my income. Did God really say do not give up meeting together with other brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, surely God understands that I'm a loner that I just naturally see the faults in others and I struggle with that, and that I just worship Him so much better when I'm out recreating. Did God really say that humility will be honored by Him? Oh, surely God will understand that I am much smarter than all the others, that they deserve the benefit of my great wisdom. Did God really say that gossip in His church is a sin? Well, surely God will understand I'm just passing it on as a prayer request, right? Did God really say? The list goes on and on, doesn't it? Did God really say? And pretty soon we're doubting the Word of God. We're doubting the consequences that come as a result of disobeying our God. And this morning, dear church, as we have looked, as we read this passage, and as we dive in now and study it, my prayer is that we will come to understand the answer to that question, did God really say these things, is a resounding absolutely. Yes, he said these things, and yes, he means them, and yes, there is holy discipline that will take place when we deliberately disobey him. That's what this passage is revealing. Here is a church that is, that is incredible. The de- description that we're going to look at at the end of chapter 4 is amazing. It's a church that anybody hopefully would want to be a part of. But then you get to chapter 5, and there's this internal deliberate disobedience. And our main point that we're going to see in this narrative passage today is this. Divine discipline always confronts deliberate disobedience. Divine discipline always confronts deliberate disobedience. When we fall into that question, did God really say, and we doubt his word, and we decide that we are no better than him, and, and, and there won't be any problem if I just do these things, and, and that maybe he really didn't mean what he said, and I deliberately, willfully, calculatedly disobey God, what we need to get today is that That is when God, who is absolutely holy, has to bring discipline. See, divine discipline always confronts deliberate disobedience. And today, we're going to look at an example of that. Today, we're going to see this example of of God's discipline coming upon two people who deliberately, deliberately deceive So in our passage, we will discover this clear example that divine discipline always confronts deliberate disobedience. Now, this example is extreme, to be sure. This example before us this morning is, is, wow, it is absolutely terrifying if you allow yourself to stop and think about it. But I would say to you, the example that we're looking at today is not a prescription of how God always disciplines deliberate sin. 
But it should at least, if nothing else, cause us a holy reverence for the holy God. See, what God is saying here is, not in my house. Not in my house. But it starts off with this incredible description of the church. In chapter 4, verse 32, we have a second general summary statement about the new church that had begun back in chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. This church was Holy Spirit-filled, Holy Spirit-led, Holy Spirit-powered. This church was, in doing, was doing amazing, amazing things. And we read in verse 32 of chapter 4, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. The full number, which by the way, back in chapter 4, verse 4, says there were 5,000 men at this point, just men which makes me believe, to, to be very conservative, there was probably a total of 8,000 to 10,000 people. And that's a conservative number. It could have been more who had believed in the resurrected Jesus Christ through this one church family. Started off with 3,120 people, and already it was almost somewhere in the neighborhood of eight to 10,000. Pretty amazing, pretty amazing. But what's even more amazing is that many people is said to be of one heart, to be of one soul, to be united. I mean, you get three people together, <laughs> and you're lucky if you get them united. Here's 8,000, 10,000 people together who are united, so much so that the Scripture reveals they cared for each other. There were poor people in the bunch, and they cared for those people. They shared their wealth. The Scripture says those who were wealthy landowners and homeowners, they began to sell their land, their property, and their houses, and they brought, it says, the, the, the proceeds to the feet of the apostles, which means we are giving you control to distribute through this church family as the needs arise. You help us take care of other people in this church family. They were caring and they were sharing with one another. And the, 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 the scripture says, and there was great power, the apostles, and they were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. This was a happening church. Verse 34 says, There was not even a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the feet, and it was distributed to each one as had need. They were caring, they were sharing, and there was evangelism going on in this church. Amen? Isn't that good? I mean, would you hear of that kind of church and go, No, I don't want to be a part of that? I, I would hope you'd go, absolutely, I want to be a part of that. Now we have an example of a, of a, positive, a positive example here. Because now we are introduced to this guy named Joseph, who the, the, the apostles changed his name to Barnabas. And we're going to hear about him throughout the pages of this book of Acts. But he, he is Joseph, and, and we know some things about him. He's a Levite, although because he is living in or was a um, resident of Cyprus, he, uh, as a Levi, uh, more, more than likely did not minister in the temple there in Jerusalem, but nonetheless, he could trace his lineage to the line of Levi. He was, uh, could be a priest. 
He had some property, obviously, because the Scripture says he sold it. And what we come to recognize is that he didn't just give part of the proceeds of what he sold. He gave all of it. He laid everything at the feet of the apostles. He is an example of a sacrificially uh, generous guy. This is sacrificial generosity here as as we hear about Barnabas. He lays everything at their feet. And as a result, his personality and perhaps more things like this went on, but the apostles became, they, they started calling him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. No longer did they call him Joseph because he was so generous and sacrificially so. In fact, you might be able to say that he willingly became poor so that those who were poor in that church could become rich. Oh, that sounds like another passage of Scripture concerning our Savior Jesus Christ. He became poor so that you and I, through faith in him, could be rich. And here's Barnabas doing the same thing. And his reward? We're going to call you Barnabas, the son of encouragement. We have a positive example of of somebody in the church that was really caring and sharing and and overly so. But then chapter 5 hits. And chapter 5 is where our negative example takes place. Chapter 5 is is where we have this incredible story that that blows our minds. It, It doesn't make sense, but it is nonetheless absolutely true. This is true, dear church. This happened. This is not legacy. This is not a great little fairy tale. This is what happened in the first church. Oh! Do you know what that means? This happened in the church age. <laughs> you know what this means? It happened in the age of grace. Jesus had already died for man's sins on the cross and risen again and ascended to the right hand of the Father. Forgiveness for sin was complete once and for all for those who would put their faith and trust in him. And in this age, the age in which you and I live, we have two people disciplined very harshly by a holy God. Why? Because they deliberately disobeyed. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, basically are two different stories of one married couple, Ananias and Sapphira. But what we come to understand in their story is they are examples of God's discipline, divine discipline, confronting, deliberate disobedience. And we have three uh, stages that are revealed for both Ananias and three stages that are revealed for Sapphira. We have the, the situation, the deceitful situation is revealed. And then we see Peter's keen confrontation. And then the third point is God's righteous retribution. We'll see all three of those in these two different accounts, one with Ananias and one with Sapphira. So let's look at the situation, the deceitful situation of Ananias, verse 1 of chapter 5. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Let's stop right there. 
Isn't that what Barnabas did? Barnabas took the proceeds of what he had sold. He laid it at the apostles' feet, and he got a new nickname because of it. So what's going on here? Let me just give you a right up front, and it's throughout this text. But the, the point is this. They were deceptive. They said, let's sell this piece of property. Let's tell everybody we sold it for this much, when in reality, we sold it for this much, and let's keep that much left over. So we're going to go in there. We're going to say we're bringing all the proceeds from this property that we sold, when in fact, we've actually kept some back. Shh, don't tell anybody. Nobody will ever know. We're still helping the church. It's okay. After all, did God really say not to give false witness? Did God really say don't lie? See? See where it's coming in? See? And so they deliberately make this plan. Together, husband and wife, they make a plan. And Ananias then comes in first, and he comes to the apostles, and maybe the whole church is meeting. I don't know. But Ananias comes in, and he takes what portion they had decided to, to bring, and he lays it at the apostles' feet, proclaiming that this was every last penny we got from that property. And he lays it at their feet. This is a, this is a sin. This is, a, this is a, 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 a deceitful situation. This is, this is Peter making himself look good. His sin was for personal gain. I believe wholeheartedly that what he was expecting was a new nickname. Hey, Joseph got a new nickname. They're calling him son of encouragement. Maybe if I do the same, I will get a new nickname. Here's the difference. Ananias didn't want to provide the sacrifice. Ananias wanted to hold it back and pretend that he had sacrificed. See, his sin was a bunch of sins here, isn't it? There, there, there is lying. He's coming in and he's telling them, I sold it for this much, when in fact he sold it for much more. He's full of hypocrisy. He wants to look good in front of them, even though he knows he's putting on airs. He's, he's showing a lie. He, he, he's pretending to be something and someone that he really is not. Can you relate to that? I can. Some of you heard this story before, and it happened just a few years ago when I was in kindergarten. I went, to a, uh, I went to kindergarten, and then I had a, a, a child care provider. Yesterday, we had a memorial service for Bonnie Abenschein, uh, and, and she provided care for children for like 40 years, right, Kevin? 40 years. And man, testimony after testimony of how she loved on kids and loved on people. Well, I went to a, a daycare was, was similar like that. Her, we called her Aunt Sarah. Now, I wasn't really related to her, but we called her Aunt Sarah. She loved us kids. We knew it. She was a Christian lady. And one of the first things you would notice, and even as a kindergartner, I would notice as I went into her house, there's no TV. I remember asking, I honestly remember asking, can we watch cartoons? And she began to tell me, we don't have TV. And she explained a little bit. Because we're Christians and we, can't, we don't think there's anything good on TV. And that was only 10 years ago when I was a kindergartner. So imagine how much worse it is today. 
I'm joking, of course. But anyway, she, she explained that to me. And that went on in my little brain. It just kind of rattled around there. And, and I'm just thinking, oh, so what I learned from Aunt Sarah today is that if you're a super Christian, if you're ultra spiritual, you don't have a TV. And that rattled around and rattled around. And I remember not too long after that, a few days later, I went to Aunt Sarah and I told her we got rid of our TV. See, I'd lied because we hadn't. But I wanted to make myself look super spiritual like Aunt Sarah was. Just exactly what Ananias is doing. He lied to make himself look good, hoping he'd get a new nickname. Aunt Sarah never gave me a new nickname. But she thought that was pretty nice. She kind of gave me verbal applause, and I went on. Well, that night, my parents said, Jeff, we'd like to talk to you. And I will never forget my dad saying, did you tell Aunt Sarah we got rid of our TV? <laughs> and it was like, how, what? How did you know? I never thought that they would talk, you know? <laughs> and my parents said, we want you tomorrow to go back and sit down with Aunt Sarah and confess to her that you lied about us getting rid of our TV. I would have much rather been spanked 10 times over than have to go sit down to a, in front of a lady that I admired as a strong Christian and confessed to her. But I will never forget, at lunchtime, I sat with Aunt Sarah, and through much, much tears, I confessed to her I had lied. See, that's what Ananias is doing. He's lying to make himself look good. Another word for it is hypocrisy. And the reason why people don't want to go to church is because the church is full of hypocrites and hypocrisy. That's what Ananias is doing here. He's setting himself up as a hypocrite. I am going to say one thing when I know for, for, for honest to goodness that's not true, but I want people to think highly of me. And so he's probably thinking, I wonder what name I'm going to get, right? I'm going to lay this at their feet, and I wonder what name I'm going to get. But no, there's a keen confrontation here by the Apostle Peter. Notice what verse 3 says. But Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain on your, your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. <laughs> Peter doesn't mince words, does he? He doesn't say, oh, brother, come here, let me give you a big hug. You poor little thing. Aunt Sarah gave me a big hug. Aunt Sarah noticed my confession, but I confessed Ananias did not. Peter knew. How did he know? I believe he knew, miraculously, by the power of the Holy Spirit, what was going on here. I believe he knew. It wasn't that he heard rumor mill and heard around that he didn't, you know, that what Ananias was doing. I believe this is a miracle. Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit, and by that Holy Spirit, he knows that Ananias is being hypocritical here. And he says, listen, that property was yours to begin with. We never told you you had to sell it. And when you sold it, whatever amount you wanted to give to the church, we never said you had to give everything to the church. You could have given 10%, which is the typical tithe. 
And that would have been fine. But you came and you lied. And I want you to see two things here. I want you to see first and foremost that somehow Satan was involved. Somehow Satan was involved. Now let me say this right from the get-go. After studying this, I do not believe Peter is saying that Ananias is possessed by Satan. Rather, Ananias was persuaded by Satan. Did God really say? Did God really say? You know, he'll understand. It's okay. He was persuaded by Satan. But look at here's the point. When things are going good, when you, as a follower of Jesus Christ, are doing what he's called you to do, and when we as a church family here, we're doing what he's called us to do, that's when we got to watch out. That's when Satan wants to attack. That's when he wants to get in here and he wants to mix things up and mess things up in your life as a follower of Christ and in the life of a church when we're following him well. This church was caring. They were sharing. Evangelism was taking place. The Holy Spirit's power continued to be shown, and the resurrected Jesus was proclaimed, and Satan got involved. You see, Satan had tried it early on in chapter 4. He had tried to go after the church through the religious leaders. Peter and John were persecuted. Satan had tried to use the the outsiders, but now he's going after somebody on the inside. And he's just whispering, has God really said? And Ananias and Sapphira, they swallowed hook, line, and sinker. But Peter says, Satan has influenced you. Satan is behind this. Now I want to tell you, when we are not doing what we're called to do, he doesn't worry about us. When we're fighting or when we're not reaching out or when we're not helping people grow, when we're not giving ourselves over to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to worship, and to prayer, then guess what? He doesn't need to go after us. But when things are going good, watch out for his attack. Watch out for him to say, has God really said? So Peter says, man, listen, why Has Satan filled your heart? But the second thing is, I want you to notice where this lie is at. Now, we often use this as a proof text to show that the Holy Spirit is God because he says, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. And then a little later on, he says, you've not lied to man, but you've lied to God. And we say, oh, you lied to the Holy Spirit, you've lied to God. We put those two together, and this says the Holy Spirit is God. Now, that's not my point this morning, although that's absolutely true. My point this morning is, listen, Ananias was not lying at face value to the Holy Spirit. Who is he lying to? The apostles. He was laying the money at their feet. These were leaders of the church there. So in a sense, he was lying to the church. But I want you to see, when you lie to the church, God's love for her, for the church, is so strong that if you lie to the church, you lie to God. You see that connection? You've lied, Peter, Peter says. You've lied. And, but you've not just lied to, the, to us. 
You've lied ultimately to God. See, God loves the church so much because God sent his son to die for the church. Jesus died for the church. The church is God's precious jewel. And when you lie to the church, you lie to God. That's what Peter's saying. Yes, it proves that the Holy Spirit is God, but I want you to also see that connection. So, so this is an this incredible deception that was deliberate on Peter's part. So now let's look at God's righteous retribution. What happens? Verse 5 of chapter 5. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Now, I tell you, there are people who want to take anything away from this that they can. They want to get rid of any kind of holiness of God in this. And they want to say, well, here's what really happened. Ananias had this heart condition, and when he was confronted with his sin, it stressed him out so much that his heart just must have burst and he died. Or he perhaps had an aneurysm or a blood clot or, or something like that. And, and, and they want to justify this death and just say, well, it wasn't really an act of God. It was just kind of an act of nature. Others would even say that this didn't happen right then. That Ananias' death took place sometime later, but they just assigned it to this event. No, 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 dear church, listen to me and listen to me well. This is God's righteous retribution. It took place immediately. The Scripture does not allow us to say it was natural death. The Scripture does not allow us to say that it took place sometime later. That word, he breathed his last, is a word that defines for us this was God's doing. God holds our breath in his hand and this is the idea that God did this, and he did it as soon as Ananias was confronted with his deliberate disobedience. Wow! The same is said of Ananias' wife, Sapphira. She breathed her last. This is God's righteous judgment upon sin. Listen, sin in the age of grace. Sin that takes place in the church. It's not an Old Testament thing now. This is New Testament. And so what we see here is, is Peter is deceptive and deliberately so. And as a result, he meets with God's judgment, with divine Discipline. Why? Because divine discipline always confronts deliberate disobedience. Always. So what about his wife? We're going to go through this quicker. And you're probably thinking, oh good, because did you see what time it is? Verse 7 is his wife. Well, let's read verse 6. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. That's actually at the end of verse 5. He says, And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Verse 7, here comes Sapphira. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. Now, stop there for a second because my mind goes crazy here. I can just imagine her. She probably was out shopping at, you know, whatever. Marshalls, 
Did they have Marshalls then? I don't know. She's probably out shopping, and she's just thinking, oh, this is so cool. I'm, I'm using some of the money that we got from our property, and they don't even know. And I'm going to give it some time. I'm going to let my husband talk to them, and, and then I'm going to come skipping in, and I just can't wait for the name they're going to give me. What nickname? Maybe Daughter of Beautiful or, or whatever. Maybe, maybe she is, I don't know. Anyway, so I can just imagine she's coming in with these expectations of being seen as something and someone that she really isn't because she was in on this. So she waits three hours and she comes in and I love what Peter does. He confronts her. Keen confrontation here. He confronts her with an understanding, a knowledge. But at the same time, he gives her an opportunity to confess. Notice what he says, verse 8. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. I love it. Who says Peter is not full of grace? Right there's grace. Tell me. You have an opportunity right here, right now to come clean. How much did you sell the property for? Your husband says this much. Is that true? <sighs> Sapphira. Still thinking she was going to get a good reputation, she goes on and she says, yes, for so much. So Peter then brings God's righteous retribution, verse 9. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And the Scripture says, verse 10, Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Why? Because deliberate disobedience will always be met with divine discipline. Divine discipline will always confront deliberate disobedience. And notice the result in verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. There was fear. At the end of verse 5, that's the same statement. There was fear. There was fear. But listen, dear church, in this situation, fear is your friend. Fear is your friend. We don't want to be afraid, do we? But in the situation, when we're talking about the holiness of God, we must understand to fear a holy God is a good thing. This was given this story, this true account of what happened here is recorded for us in the Word of God that we too might have a holy fear of God. That we don't play the has God really said game. That we don't even start to, say, to think, oh, surely He will understand if I just engage a little bit in sin. See, in this age of grace, and I am so, so thankful that there is grace, but in this age of grace, we can swing way too far on it. And we can think that grace gives us license to do whatever we want. But dear church, this is recorded for us in God's word so that we would recognize that even in the age of grace, divine discipline always confronts deliberate disobedience. Yes, we should fear a holy God. Yes, we should. 
But we should allow that fear of a holy God to, to, to cause us to go running to a gracious Savior. The Word of God is true. It's by grace you are saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not of anything we do, not of our works so that we can't boast. It's all about Him, all about what Jesus did on the cross for us. Yes, salvation comes by God's grace when we trust in Jesus and what He's done on the cross for our sins. But we cannot cheapen that grace by going on and living an unholy lifestyle in front of a holy God. What does Peter say? Peter reminds us that God says, you need to be holy. And he's talking to grace-filled saints, followers of Jesus Christ. And he says, you need to be holy because God is holy. You need to live a holy lifestyle because God is holy. And today we're seeing that holiness engaging sin. Divine discipline will always confront deliberate disobedience. So let's say two things today. Number one, for those that are unsaved, for those that have not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, what does this passage say to them? It says, excuse me, this thing keeps falling off today. I don't know why. It says, if you're an unsaved person, you need to think twice before you enter into the holy community of Jesus Christ. If you're an unsaved person, you need to think twice before you just come into a holy community. Now, I'm not saying that salvation isn't a free gift. It is a free gift And I'm not saying you need to achieve your salvation by being holy. That's not true. We just pointed out Ephesians chapter 2. But what Jesus has said, even in a parable, you need to count the cost if you're going to follow Jesus. If you're just coming to Jesus for fire insurance, you just want to pray the prayer to get you out of hell, and then you want to live like hell the rest of your life, guess what? That doesn't cut it before a holy God. See, if you're unsaved, what this passage should say to you is you really need to think about this. You really need to think about your sin and God's view of your sin right now. You need to think about what Jesus has done on the cross for your sin. And before you say yes and put your faith and trust in Jesus, you need to recognize that part of that means living as a follower of Jesus. Ooh, some of you might just be harping on me because it's by grace and grace alone. Yes, it is. But we've just seen how God looks at sin. So if you are an unsaved person, you need to recognize we are not seeker-sensitive here. Peter's not seeker-sensitive. We're not seeker-sensitive. We're not going to just kind of play footsies with you and patty cakes with you if you don't know Jesus. We want you to know Jesus, but we want you to understand that when you come to saving faith, it changes everything. It changes everything. For those that are saved, here's the message. Here's what God is saying to us who make up this church family here. God is saying, not in my house. 
Sin cannot go on in my house. God is saying, if sin goes on in my house, expect my discipline. Because even though we live in an age of grace, God is saying, do not allow sin in the house of God. Not in my house. Remember Achan? Achan, he sinned. He took things that were not his, that were supposed to be dedicated to God. He took them and he hid them. And as a result, the army was massacred when they went out to fight a tiny little city because God's saying, not among my people. When there's sin in the camp, you're going to have problems. But he's saying it today to us through Ananias and Sapphira. He's saying, not in my church. When there's sin in the church, you're going to have problems because my discipline always has to confront deliberate disobedience. So I don't know. Maybe you're here today and you're struggling with areas of sin in your life and maybe deliberately so. Maybe it's a sin that you cannot get over. You just keep going back to and you've gotten so far to the point where you have really believed God hasn't said that. And even if he did, he understands my struggle with it. We cannot allow that mindset in the house of God. God says, not in my house. So here's what I ask you to do. Whatever that sin is, would you, in the quietness of your own heart right now, in prayer to God, confess that to him? Just bow your head. Close your eyes. Confess whatever that is to him. Recognize that his divine discipline will confront that deliberate disobedience. But he also will give you forgiveness from everything when you confess it to him. 